Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast, now part of the Finding Genius Foundation. Um, My guest is Ted Dynan. He's a professor of psychiatry at the University of College, Cork, Ireland. Uh, We're going to talk about gut microbiota today. He was also a co-author on a book called Psychobiotics. talks about our microbiomes and how they affect our mood, our emotions, our intellect, I mean, everything. Really, really crazy, amazing stuff. So glad to have you. Welcome, Ted. My pleasure. Tell me a bit about uh, your background and uh, you know why you're a professor of psychiatry. You're looking at the microbiome. Does it seem Indeed. like uh, many people look at that in your field? That is certainly true. I went to medical school here in Cork. I then went to New York for a while after med school, where I was working in neurophysiology with Gary Aston Jones. Um, after that, I came back to London, and my first kind of faculty post, proper faculty post, was in Trinity College in Dublin, where I was uh, a junior member of faculty. I, I became director of the clinical neurosciences program at St. Bartholomew's Hospital in London, and I was there for a few years, and then returned to Ireland, to, to Cork. Um, and I, I've been in Cork really for the last 20 years or so. And um, my research into the gut and the brain, it goes back a long, long time. Um, when I was on junior faculty in Trinity College in Dublin, I became very friendly with the gastroenterologist, Nap Keeling. Um, and Nap is a an exceedingly good gastroenterologist. He's published a lot in that field. And he kind of convinced me or persuaded me that there were strong links between the brain and the gut and that they were worth studying. And I published a few papers at that stage. I'm not sure they were ever particularly heavily cited. But at the time when people spoke about the brain-gut axis, they really didn't include the microbes within the gut. And it's really only when in the last 15 years that microbes within the gut have been regarded as an important aspect of the brain-gut axis. Um, Microbes in the gut up to then had been just regarded as commensal, and by that we meant that we fed them. They didn't do us much harm, but they didn't do us a lot of good either. But we now know that, in fact, microbes within the gut, and there are many different types, I suppose the ones that are most extensively studied are bacteria, but there are viruses, and there are fungi, you know, there are a lot of different microbes within the intestine, and they do play a role in the brain-gut axis, an important role. I, you know, I suppose your listeners may find it interesting that one kilogram, about two pounds of bacteria are present in the intestine, mainly in the large intestine. And that's really the weight of the human brain. So really, the microbiota, that collection of bacteria in the gut, weigh about as much as the human brain. And it's a very complex ecosystem that microbiota, we feed it, and I suppose how it how it develops is dependent on how we feed it. Um, quick question, something that came to mind. Of all the microbes and other creatures in our gut and the communication between them, you know, to trade resources and whatever else there is they do, since there's so many of them in the gut, I mean, could they form essentially a, a distributed brain 
you know, where these different, even though they're different bacteria, different species, strains, et cetera, they, they communicate and they kind of all have a, a common purpose, a common monitoring, or, you know, do they form an entity inside of us? I, 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 I think they probably do. And of course, you know, that entity is developed early on, but it evolves as we develop. So a bit like our brains develop with the passage of time, so does the microbiota. I mean, the initial microbiota is dependent on whether on how we were born. Were we born by caesarean section or were we born per vaginum through the mum's birth canal? Obviously, the optimal way to be born is through the mum's birth canal, but sometimes babies are born by caesarean section. And we know that those two situations lead to very different initial microbiotas. The microbiota of the baby born per vaginum is very different to the microbiota of the baby born um, through or by caesarean section. The baby born by caesarean section develops its initial microbiota from microbes on the skin of the doctor, the nurse, the mum, and from the general environment, whereas the baby born per vaginum picks up lactobacilli largely as it passes through the birth canal. So for the first two years to two and a half years, the microbiotas are very different, but they do converge at about two and a half years. So there's not too much difference. Now, the brain obviously develops a lot in the first two and a half years, and I believe... What, what do you mean? Micro- what, one second, what converges after two years? I'm sorry. Well, the microbiota of the baby born by caesarean section and the baby born per vaginum, they're very different initially, but over the first two and a half years, they converge. So they're very similar at two and a half to three years. And so so there isn't much difference. Now, that doesn't mean that the initial differences don't have importance. I mean, we know that babies born by cesarean section have far more allergies and asthma than do babies born per vaginum. And, you know, so, so there clearly are, you know, health differences as a result of that uh, initial difference. It's also worth pointing out that, you know, as humans, the optimal microbiota early on has little diversity. In other words, it has loads of lactobacilli as the dominant species. But as adults, as healthy adults, you and I want to have a microbiota that is very diverse. If we look at the other end of the age spectrum and people who are elderly, healthy aging, we know, is associated with the maintenance of diversity. And that if there is a loss of diversity in the elderly, frailty is follows very rapidly so how come we, how come we can't uh, we don't seem to characterize diversity beyond you know the types of strains how come we can't do it from you know their functionality you know their metagenomics or you know other yeah other type that's, of perspectives? that's an interesting point i think it's you know we do know that diversity is a good thing so i mean if you have your microbiota analyzed and it shows lots of diversity that's a good thing i think the problem really is that this is a field very much in its infancy and there isn't really even at this particular point in time a definitive definition of what a normal microbiota is we know that diversity is good, that everyone accepts that, but what exactly is a normal microbiota we don't know. What about why is diversity well, good? Is it because there's redundancy, but, you know, maybe it's just like a, a crop. If you have all the same genetically identical corn and a parasite comes or something, it'll kill all the corn. So maybe well, the diversity not only has to be, you know, across species or strains to protect the gut microbiome from attack. Maybe that's it, 
Well, I think that in terms of the brain, which is obviously the organ that I'm most interested in, the gut microbiota produces a myriad of molecules that the brain requires, you know, and the brain and other organs. Now, if we were to take all the genes in the gut microbiota, the product of which our brains or other organs require, those cells in the brain or in other parts of the body wouldn't be big enough to contain all the genes. So it's just as well that we have co-evolved with bacteria. The bacteria need us, we feed them, but in turn they contain genes that produce products that our brains and other organs require. So when you ask, well, what is the problem with a lack of diversity? The problem seems to be that if you lose diversity, you lose the capability of producing certain molecules because these molecules may only be produced by bacteria. And as a result of that lack of diversity, various organs in the body, including the brain, do not function as well as they might. Do they have secondary compounds that they can use in the absence of the primary proper ones? Is that when established? You know, many of your listeners will be familiar with serotonin because, I mean, so much has been written about medications like Prozac that act on serotonin in the brain. Now, if you look at serotonin, serotonin is produced from tryptophan. That's the amino acid, the building block upon which serotonin is built. Now, one of the problems with serotonin in the human brain is that we have very limited storage capacity for tryptophan. We need a constant supply of it crossing the blood-brain barrier. If the levels of tryptophan, for whatever reasons, drop or don't cross the blood-brain barrier, it does predispose to mood disorder. Now, one of the primary sources of tryptophan is the microbes. The microbes in the gut are capable of producing tryptophan. But of course, we know that the diet can be an important source of tryptophan as well. In fact, it isn't really known, you know, what is the percentage coming from the microbes and what is the percentage coming from the diet. But here is a scenario where you do get some of the tryptophan from the diet, and then there is other Another proportion comes from the gut microbiota. I think we, we were probably the first group to show, in it was in, in animals, that certain bifidobacteria, if they were fed to animals, and that's a probiotic-type bacteria, that the levels of tryptophan in the bloodstream were increased. So, you know, it's an example of, I suppose, two different sources of tryptophan. And well, maybe that, that there's one type of bacteria producing tryptophan? Yes, bifidobacteria do seem to be capable of producing tryptophan. They have the necessary machinery to produce it. Before we continue, I've been personally funding the Finding Genius podcast for four and a half years now, which has led to 2,700 plus interviews of clinicians, researchers, scientists, CEOs, and other amazing people who are working to advance science and improve our lives and our world. Even though this podcast gets 100,000 plus downloads a month, we need your help to reach hundreds of thousands more worldwide. Please visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click on Support Us. We have three levels of membership from $10 to $49 a month, including perks such as the ability to see ahead in our interview calendar and ask questions of upcoming guests, transcripts of podcasts you're interested in, the ability to request specific topics or guests, and more. Visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click Support Us today. Now back to the show. From what? What precursors does it come from? That is not entirely clear. That is not entirely clear. 
all we can say really is that you know if you if you feed animals with with bifidobacteria with certain strains of bifidobacteria the tryptophan levels of the bloodstream increase which is yeah. uh, it, it is thought directly due to the bifidobacteria what about the bacteria that are responsible for producing serotonin and tryptophan have they been identified they have there are certain microbes producing serotonin but it is clear that those microbes that's that that serotonin doesn't directly influence the brain now it may be very important at the level of the gut and there's a lot of serotonin in the gut and it may be very important in regulating the enteric nervous system around the gut but it doesn't directly influence the brain and the reason it doesn't directly influence the brain is that serotonin doesn't cross the blood-brain barrier tryptophan does it's actively transported across the blood-brain barrier but serotonin is not so the serotonin produced by microbes if produced in the gut will have an influence at a local level in the gut and may indirectly have an influence on the brain, but not 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 as a result of passing through the blood-brain barrier because it's not capable of doing that. Hmm. So what's the difference in serotonin maybe harvested from a brain versus the gut? Is there any other enantiomers no. or different forms of it? Or is it almost- no, no, no. It's, it's essentially the same. I mean, there are three major sources of tryptophan within the body. And there are more, but the, the three primary sources would be the gut would be number one. Platelets, those bits of cells that are within the bloodstream and are so important for clotting, have quite a lot of serotonin. And they have a serotonin uptake mechanism. And then, of course, there's the brain. So they're the three tissue components that contain significant levels of serotonin. Hmm. Okay. But we don't know what's producing serotonin in the brain, and we don't know how bacteria produce tryptophan, and well, do we know the mechanisms by which they produce serotonin? Well, we, 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 cer- we certainly know how serotonin is produced in the brain. I mean, the majority of the serotonin is produced by raphe neurons in the brain stem. Now, they're highly arborized neurons so that they arborize and they influence neurons at a cortical level and they influence neurons in the hip, in the thalamic or the, the hypothalamic and the limbic structures as well. And those neurons, those raphe neurons, convert tryptophan to 5-hydroxytryptophan to serotonin. So they have the necessary machinery to make serotonin or 5-HT from tryptophan. Now, we don't know the exact way in which tryptophan is produced by microbes in the gut. It is not, has not been established to my knowledge as yet. And again, we don't know the precursors that would make tryptophan and that the bacteria would use? No, we don't really. We don't. We don't. We just know that certain bacteria are capable of producing it and increasing blood levels, but we don't know really. And we do know that they have enzymes that are capable of producing tryptophan, but the exact mechanism is not fully established. What would be the reason that bacteria would produce tryptophan in the first place? What's its reward? Just sugar molecules or what do we know? It's an interesting question. I mean, you know, as a psychiatrist, I'm, I'm fascinated by the fact that all of the major neurotransmitters in the human brain, GABA, serotonin, norepinephrine, dopamine, histamine, they're all produced by microbes in the gut. Now, I mean, we, we've worked fairly extensively with lactobacilli, and lactobacilli all produce GABA. 
So GABA is the most important in inhibitory neurotransmitter in the human brain. But so all we can say is that all the common neurotransmitters in the brain are produced by microbes in the gut. But what they function at at the level of the gut, I mean, they, they obviously have a signaling function. But what exactly that signaling function is, we don't really know. Interesting. Is there much experimentation going on to figure any of this out? Or is it a mystery and not important that other people are working out of this stuff? Um, I'm, I'm sure there are microbiologists. I suppose because I'm a psychiatrist, my interest is how these microbes actually influence the brain, not how they necessarily function in their own right. So I presume that there are microbiologists working on this particular issue. Yeah, well, so what are the effects of the good on the brain and what are the methods of interaction between the Right. The gut microbes communicate with the brain in a variety of ways. The vagus nerve, that long meandering nerve that connects the brain and the gut, is very important for transmitting signals. It's now known that about 10% of the signals are for the, from the brain to the gut and about 90% of the signals are from the gut to the brain. And we have shown in a paper in PNAS a few years back that certain microbes can only communicate with the brain when the gut, when the, the vagus nerve is intact. If the vagus nerve is cut for any reason, the microbes can't talk or communicate with the brain. You might say, well, that'd be a strange situation. Well, you know, those of us who practice medicine, well, I was a medical student back in the 1970s. And in the 1970s, people who had chronic peptic ulcers often had vagotomies where the vagus nerve was caught. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. What? So it, it was the standard treatment in the US and in Europe for treating people who had chronic peptic ulcers. Of course, then came along the H2 antagonists and, and the surgery disappeared. But up until the 1970s, vagotomy was a a surgical procedure that was extremely common because, of course, at the time we didn't re recognize the fact that H. pylori in bacteria was responsible for ulcers. And one of the ways of getting rid of an ulcer or helping to deal with symptoms was to vagotomize individuals. But, and interestingly enough, there is some evidence to indicate that people, and they would obviously be, those people would be very elderly now, but that the people who had vagotomies back in the 50s, 60s and 70s, that they actually have less Parkinson's disease than the general population, which has given rise to the view that Parkinson's disease actually starts or begins in the gut. Now, so the vagus nerve is an important route of communication between the brain and the gut, but there are other routes of communication as well. Um, the production of short-chain fatty acids by microbes. Microbes, when they metabolize fiber, produce short-chain fatty acids, and short-chain fatty acids such as butyrate, propionate, and acetate can travel in the bloodstream and do influence the brain and influence the way genes in the brain operate. And then, as I've already mentioned, microbes can produce tryptophan. And tryptophan, of course, is the building block of serotonin. So serotonin is involved in regulating mood, is involved in regulating sleep and appetite. And tryptophan is the building block of that serotonin. So there are many ways, I've just mentioned three of the more common ways, but there are many ways in which got microbes can talk to the brain. Why do you think that most of the signaling is from gut to brain? Is it, uh, I guess it's so critical, the, the nutrients and the information that's taken in by the gut, that it needs to communicate it to the brain. But, but to do what? You know, to tell you the state of the, the whole body is changing in this way, or the state of the gut is being affected in this way? Like, why the communication? What's being said? 
Yeah, it's a very interesting question. There are a lot of signals going in the opposite direction as well through the spinal cord and the vagus nerve and probably through various hormones. Um, you know, hormones like, you know, cortisol, which is the end product of the hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis, undoubtedly influences our gut, as does adrenaline. So, I mean, we're all, we're all well, aware leptin, of... I guess leptin and ghrelin, you know, they, they govern appetite eating a lot. So that they must be very important. Absolutely. Very much so. And of course, you know, we're all familiar with occasionally having butterflies in the stomach. You know, when you're tense and anxious, you have butterflies in your stomach. Well, how does that occur? It occurs because adrenaline and noradrenaline are acting, you know, at the, the level of the intestine and, and producing those symptoms. So I think the gut, our microbes in the gut regulate, as you say, ghrelin and leptin and tell us when when we're hungry or when we're when we're satiated, and um, as I say, the, the gut microbes are involved in regulating mood because you know the the brain cannot function without serotonin, and um, and I and I think that you know that is the key. It's really that microbes within the gut produce molecules that we can't produce. So our brains require those molecules. So if you want a, a properly functioning brain, you need molecules produced by the gut. Now, we've published quite a lot on animals who have no gut microbiota. So we, we raise mice without a gut microbiota. And the question is, what impact does that have on the brain? And the answer is that the brain does not develop normally in the absence of a gut microbiota. The serotonergic system doesn't develop normally. The myelination patterns, neurons in the brain have a myelin sheath. Of course, we know, or many listeners would be familiar with the fact that myelin can be lost in diseases like Parkinson's or like multiple sclerosis. So in multiple sclerosis, the myelin sheath is lost. Well, we've shown that myelination is regulated, at least in part, by the gut microbiota. So the brain is its development and its functioning is dependent upon microbes in the gut producing molecules because the brain itself is incapable of producing all of the molecules it requires for effective or normal functioning. So part of the communication is electrical through the nervous system. And if so, can we tap into that and see what the signals are and maybe decipher them? I think that's an interesting question. Clearly, you know, and it's something that I was involved with a study a few years ago. I'm, I'm very interested in depression and, and how we treat very severe forms of depression. And one of the things that has been used to treat severe forms of depression, and, and, and there, have been, there are a number of papers in the literature, including study that I was involved with, is where you stimulate the vagus nerve with an electrical stimulator. And you obviously increase the input from the vagus nerve into the brain. And that can be an effective way of treating severe forms of depression. And there are a lot of people now who claim that various breathing techniques and so forth can be used to alter the activity of the vagus nerve. I'm not entirely convinced of that. And I don't think we know enough right now to know about the actual signaling and how to interpret that signal. I do believe that with artificial intelligence, progressing at such a rapid rate and machine learning that that we will be able to identify what patterns of firing within the vagus nerve produce what effect in the brain. But right now we can't do so, can't say that. Yeah, we'd probably have to speak to a, a nerve specialist, but is there such a creature? Is there a person that or a group of scientists that are studying literally the electrical patterns of signaling, you know, throughout the nervous system? Or is it like a yeah. Morse code type thing. Like how are they 
Oh, yeah, absolutely. What's being transmitted and what it means. Oh, absolutely. I mean, there are several groups internationally. I mean, I saw a paper there only two or three weeks ago looking at doing very sophisticated electrophysiological monitoring of the brain and trying to interpret what that meant to the individual at a cognitive level. What was the individual thinking of when they had that electrical pattern? So there are many groups internationally working on that. It's not my area of expertise, but it's, I'm certainly aware of many different groups actually working on that. Has anyone successfully made a gut and a brain organoid and tried to connect them to see what the communication is, like a proxy for it? I'm, you know what, perhaps, but, you know, I do think that, you know, animal models, and I believe that for all sorts of reasons, I think animal experimentation should be should be confined to a minimum. But I do think that, you know, animal the intact animal is probably the appropriate way to do that because there are so many complex interactions between the gut and the brain. I'm not sure we could mimic them all in a Petri dish. Yeah, you know, I'm not saying it's the answer, but it might just provide another type and level of insight versus oh, indeed. mouse model. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. And look, you know, you know, 15 years ago, we didn't know that gut microbes could produce such a vast array of neurotransmitters. We now know that. And so I think that that was a, in itself a significant advance. So I, I wouldn't in, in any sense dismiss the argument you're putting forward there. Is there a way to, um, in a mouse or, you know, whatever creature to uh, temporarily block the action of the vagus nerve equivalent? You know, let's say um, during sleep or for 12 hours a day or uh, before a meal or after a meal and see what, you know, what happens, like a temporary blocking of, of the signaling. Well, pharmacologically, you know, that may be possible to some extent. The problem is that a lot of drugs, I suppose, aren't that selective. They won't just block the, the vagus nerve. I mean, you know, you could use anti-muscarinic drugs to block certain aspects of vagal activity. But because these drugs aren't that highly selective, they would obviously have other actions as well. Oh, is, there, so, is there any way to do like a physical crimping of it without damaging the nerve? That may be possible. I'm not aware of it if that has been done. I mean, in our studies, we've tended to cut the vagus nerve. So you, you, you obviously, you, you don't have an intact vagus nerve. And the problem is you can't reconnect it once you've cut it. And, you know, you know, we've obviously learned a certain amount from those particular studies, but the studies you suggest would certainly throw further light if one could temporarily block the vagus nerve and reconnect it again, one would get a better understanding of its functionality. I mean, the thing about the vagus nerve, you see, is the reason it is so difficult to cut or to temporarily deactivate it is that it innervates all of the internal organs. It's not just the gut. I mean, it innovates the heart and it innovates the lungs, you know. So it really produce, it presents a technologically complex scenario to just simply alter the fibers that are innervating the gut without impacting so, those fibers that innervate, let's say, the heart. So it's like a country-level internet cable under the sea. It carries all kinds of traffic. And, you know, it, does, it does. It does. It's function. Who knows what it would do? Absolutely, it does. It it, it does. It, you know, it really is. 
you know, it, it's known, the, the term vagus means wandering or, or, or rambling, and it is a rambling nerve. It's an exceedingly large peripheral nerve, and it does innervate a vast array of organs in the body. So, so that makes studying it much more difficult. Of course, you know, within the brain, it goes into an area of the brain called the nucleus tractus solitarius, and you have outputs from there going into the limbic structures, which regulate mood. So, there has been a long association, which I've already mentioned, between the vagus nerve and depression because the vagus nerve, the way it innervates in the brain, it influences limbic structures, which are very much involved in regulating mood. Have they looked at brain activity before, during, and after eating? That may reveal quite a bit. Yes, it's not a research field that I would be that au fait with, but I have no doubt that very much has been done. I mean, you know, I suppose in recent times, with the emergence of drugs like Ozempic, um, there's been far more emphasis on neurotransmitters and hormones as well in response to eating. And I'm familiar with some of that research, but I have no doubt that there are groups that have looked at the electrophysiological activity of the brain following eating. So your particular research or your particular questions, what are they surrounding this area? I've just been asking you, you know, every angle I can think of, but what particular things are you looking to solve? Right. Well, I suppose really, you know, I'm a psychiatrist and I'm very conscious of the fact that a large number of patients have mild forms of depression. I mean, I treat people who have very severe forms of depression, but there are people out there, far more numerous, who have milder forms of depression who go to their primary care physicians or perhaps a psychologist. And many of them don't want to take an antidepressant or They don't want to wait around for cognitive behavior therapy to work, or perhaps they find seeing a psychologist too expensive. And if there were alternative natural products available, they would take them. So I introduced the concept of psychobiotics into the literature, I can't remember, about 10 or 11 years ago. In a paper I published in Biological Psychiatry, I introduced the concept, and by a psychobiotic, I meant a bacteria, which when ingested inadequate amounts had a positive mental health benefit. And for me, the real challenge going forward is to develop psychobiotics that would improve people's mood when they have milder forms of depression. Now, there are challenges in relation to that. And the main, well, the main challenges, if you had asked me five years ago, did I think that this was very feasible and possible to have solid data on a psychobiotic, I would have said absolutely. The problem is that in order to to produce such data, you need vast sums of money. And it's, it's the sort of sums that only big pharma can generate. But big pharma are concerned about this area. And they're concerned about this area, I suppose, largely because they are not convinced that they can protect the intellectual property. If you had a microbe, let's say it was bifidobacteria, and let's say it was effective in treating depression. Now, that would be a very big study. It would take a lot of subjects, and it would be a very large-scale study. And, you, of course, you would need two of those studies if the FDA or the European Medicines Agency was going to approve the product for treating depression. So they would be very expensive studies. But the problem is that the intellectual property may not be as defensible as it might seem superficially. Somebody else could come along and just tweak the genome of that microbe 
and they would still have a very effective antidepressant, but they wouldn't have spent much money on developing that particular antidepressant, that that psychobiotic. Mm. So I think, you know, is it possible to develop psychobiotics that will treat mild forms of depression? Yes. Would the consumer want those? Absolutely. They're crying out for natural products. But I don't think as right at this particular point in time that Big Pharma is convinced that the intellectual property can actually be protected. Do you do uh, CBT sessions or do you just, you know, I, as a psychiatrist, I, you just prescribe drugs? No, I mean, I'm I, I'm all in favor of CBT and I use, and I have used over the years CBT in my clinical practice. So I suppose if you would ask me, what do I do in my clinical practice or what have I done over the years? It's, I suppose, I sometimes give people advice. I use antidepressants and I use cognitive behavior therapy. Well, no, the reason why I ask is, when, what, how about an experiment where you have your patients keep a food diary and then right before a session, they eat or don't eat certain things, see how that affects their, uh, you know, how they deal with you in the session. You know, they're more receptive or they, you know, et cetera, that kind of stuff. I mean, there they be a lot of like uh, simple stuff that could be done, I think. Indeed. So. Well, I think that, you know, there is a lot of research in this area in the published field. I have a, a new book out that I edited for Cambridge University Press on nutrition and psychiatry. And we do know that people on a Mediterranean diet which obviously contains a lot of fermented food, a lot of fruit, a lot of vegetables, a lot of fish, a lot of olive oil, that they are far less likely to suffer from depression than are people on an American or a Northern European diet. So, I mean, we do know that there are certain diets, particularly a Mediterranean diet, which is associated with less depression than a traditional Western diet. And there is evidence from people like Felice Jacka at Deakin University in Australia, who's taken people who are clinically depressed, and she randomly assigned half of them to go on a Mediterranean diet and half of them to receive social support. And she followed them for 12 weeks. And those on the Mediterranean diet showed far greater drops in depression scores than those who were treated with social support. So so there is no doubt in my mind that nutrition is exceedingly important in terms of treating depression. And if you're if you have listeners who who suffer from depression, I would strongly suggest that whether it's medication or cognitive behavior therapy or a combination of the two that they're being used that are being used to treat them, they should be on a Mediterranean type diet. The, mm. the overwhelming evidence indicates that a Western type diet which is high in processed foods and high in red meat is not good for mood. What particular foods within the Mediterranean diet appear to be levers to modulate mood? Now, has anyone gone deeper and looked into the components of the diet, specifically Uh, what it is? Well, I think that certainly fruit and vegetables are are pretty key, and, and fish does seem to be key as well. There are studies, you know, from Sonnenberg's group, to show that fermented foods can have a very dramatic impact on the gut microbiota and can reduce inflammation. Now, severe depression is associated with inflammation. So there is evidence that people who take a lot of fermented foods in the form of yogurt, kefir, sauerkraut, kombucha, those foods reduce inflammation. 
and one would assume are good from a mental health perspective. And, you know, I certainly, you know, growing up, I, I grew up here in Ireland. And when I was a kid, really, the only fermented food that was regularly available here was probably yogurt. But now, I mean, you go to any ordinary shop and you will find, you know, kefir, kombucha, sauerkraut. You know, there are so many different fermented foods available. And I do think that if somebody suffers, I think we probably all should take fermented foods in. But certainly if one suffers from depression, one should definitely be taking fermented foods in. Yeah, terrible joke would be there's no one that's that's fermentally ill. That's true. Absolutely. That is true. Um, I think that if you want to reduce your risk of a, of an episode of depression recurring or you want to get rid of an episode of depression, I do think that you should eliminate processed foods reduce the amount of red meat taken in and increase fermented foods, fruit and vegetables. What about, I've thought about this, a set of probiotics and probiotics that you'd take with every meal. So they wouldn't be so strong as like you get crazy diarrhea if you take them, you know, multiple ones of the pills. Yeah. But I say this because I've been told that the effect is in the transit. That's why fermented foods and other foods, you know, modulate us. It's not that they, they will take up residence in us forever, but again, in transit, they're producing something that is helping us. So what if you had, again, a, a set of probiotics that acted as a digestive enzyme and you had it with every meal? What would that yeah. do to you? How would I, that help you? I, you know, I, I think there are encouraging probiotics out there that do seem to have the potential to reduce stress levels in people. And I agree entirely that there is no evidence that in the overwhelming majority of people, that psychobiotics or probiotics, whatever one wants to call them, colonize the gut and grow in the gut. They don't. They go in the mouth. They go out the anus. So if one is finding that a probiotic or a fermented food is particularly helpful in terms of one's mood, it is necessary to take it on an ongoing basis. Hmm. Well, very good, Dad. We're close to being out of time. I, I'd like to know more about what you're working on. Where can people follow you and then see all the things that you're involved in? Do you really have a a handle on a lot of what's going on within the uh, psychobiotics industry. Very interesting. Yeah, well, I, I you know, I, 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 I suppose it's mainly in the scientific literature. Um, so I, I, yeah, I, I do publish reviews, you know, of of what we're up to. Um, so it's probably if if people aren't if it isn't too tedious to look up PubMed and you will see what I'm up to there. And I do publish reviews uh, on a fairly regular basis, uh, you know, outlining what we're up to. Excellent. Okay. Well, very good. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Really great. Appreciate it. My pleasure. My pleasure. Have a good day. Take care. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.